what is the biblical correction to the social justice movement with its critical race theory? Well, first of all, the Bible would say this, the real problem is sin. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Should believers and the church get involved in issues such as racism and inequality? If so, how exactly? Politically? Socially? Economically? Or is there another way? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 15 of his series titled Trending Versus Truth. As we continue to look at social justice issues, Tom will examine in greater depth the pervasive depravity of the human heart and how the rejection of God and His principles are the ultimate root of all inequality, perceived or real. The question is, how do you respond to the outworkings of the human heart's depravity? Do you submit yourself to the authority and truth of Scripture, or do you go along with the current trends? Keep those things in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. Now today we come to a fourth observation about the social justice movement, and that is the cultural expressions. How is it trending? What does it look like around us? Well, there's so much that could be said here, and I want to get to, to the biblical correction, so I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but there are three main cultural expressions of the social justice movement today as it is informed by the critical race theory. First of all, there is academic indoctrination. This is re really where it started. You remember I told you last time that there were those Marxists who developed the Frankfurt School, eventually were chased from Germany by Hitler, ended up at, in 1935 at Columbia University, and began to indoctrinate their students with this, and it spread across in, in the following decades across our country. CRT has permeated the academic world and is now the prevailing system of thought taught to college students. Yes, probably even in your alma mater. William Jacobson, a Cornell Law School professor, has created a list of more than 200 colleges and universities in the U.S. that promote critical race theory. But it doesn't stop in higher education. In elementary, middle, and high schools, and you've seen this, some of you have told me stories from your own families, that the administration and teachers in many of schools even here are either intentionally teaching and promoting CRT, being systematically re-educated to embrace it, or in other cases are simply unwittingly embracing some of its key tenets but under the guise of different names like diversity and inclusion. According to Education Week website, which is, is not excited about this, is simply reporting it, as of the end of August, 27 states have, out of concern about how this is spreading through our educational system, 27 states have introduced bills or taken steps that would restrict teaching critical race theory, and 12 states have enacted bans, either through direct legislation or other avenues. A second cultural expression is cultural re-education. 
This is how things always move through our world, right? They start at the academic level. The ideas are taught to the elite. They end up leading corporations and government, and then they end up dispersing those ideas through the culture. That's what's happening with this idea. So the second expression is cultural re-education. This re-education is happening in government and in corporate America. It involves openly teaching CRT or teaching the same concepts as diversity, inclusion, or sensitivity. Many businesses, because their leadership were taught this, indoctrinated with this in their academic institutions, or because of public pressure, many businesses have become outspoken supporters of the social justice movement and critical race theory. Public statements, advertisements, and a systematic re-education of employees. Again, several of you have mentioned to me what you have faced in your own workplace in these ways. Owen Strawn, in his book, Christianity and Wokeness, cites the now infamous example of diversity, a diversity training session caught on video in 2016 that went viral. The trainer, this diversity trainer, said to a room of women, many of them white, this, all white people are racist. You are always going to be racist, even when you're on a path to be a better human being. I believe all white people are born into not being human, end quote. She finished by saying that white people grow up to be, quote, demons, end quote. Now, I think all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ understand how wrong that is, regardless of the context, regardless of what else you believe. But this is where this is where things are going. This is the kind of re-education culturally that's happening both in government and in corporate America, as well as in the schools, as I've already mentioned. Large international corporations even use their clout to punish states, cities, and other businesses that don't support these ideologies. The third expression, a little closer to home, is evangelical assimilation. Evangelical assimilation. The evangelical struggle with the social justice movement grew out of what many of you are familiar with and have heard about, the Young, Restless, and Reform movement. It was a a Calvinistic resurgence in evangelicalism, and there were many good things about it. But out of this group, voices in that movement began just a couple of years ago to really champion ideas that were clearly influenced by the critical race theory. In 2018, Matt Chandler of The Village delivered a lecture entitled, A House Divided Cannot Stand, Understanding and Overcoming the Inconsistencies in White Evangelicals on Racial Issues. He reflected in that address some of the ideas that we've talked about. Tabidi Anwabidle began to teach the CRT concept of collective guilt in that same year. Also in 2018 at the Together for the Gospel conference, and I and our staff, our pastoral staff were there along with our wives, and David Platt delivered an opening message in the T4G conference in which he used Amos 5 to argue that evangelicals are guilty of systemic injustice. In 2018, Eric Mason wrote a book entitled Woke Church, 
an urgent call for Christians in America to confront racism and sin. And then the next year, in 2019, Jamar Tisby wrote The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Now, all of that happened within a very short period of time, and in response to this aggressive promotion of the social justice movement in the church, a group of our friends gathered here in Dallas and wrote the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel called the Dallas Statement. The key signers of that were John MacArthur, Vody Bauckham, and Tom Askell. It was, a, it was a response to this quick onslaught of what was happening in evangelicalism. Also in 2019, and many of you are aware of this because of your Southern Baptist roots, at the annual Southern Baptist Convention, this issue created a firestorm connected to Resolution 9. Now, if you've never heard of Resolution 9, or even if you have, let me tell you that it's, it's not, it didn't start the way you think it started. It actually began as a Southern Baptist pastor's call for the SBC to reject CRT and cultural Marxism. That's how it began, but it was reshaped by progressives into a statement which actually affirmed the value of CRT as a helpful set of, quote, analytical tools, end quote. Then in 2020, last year, the Council of Seminary Presidents of the SBC released a statement in which they repudiated CRT and, in essence, Resolution 9. Now, I, I share all that history with you just to have you get this point. Evangelicalism has been infiltrated by and has assimilated much of the ideology of the social justice movement and CRT. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not accusing all of those whose names I have just mentioned of being cultural Marxists. I'm not even saying that all of them are consciously promoting CRT. However, I think what we do have to recognize, and I think it's apparent, is that many evangelicals are being influenced by this worldview. You can tell that's true by the definitions they use, by the organizations they support, by the views that they hold, by the methods that they are using to achieve those goals of what they call justice. So be alert. At the same time, please be gracious. Not everyone who supports the social justice movement supports or even is aware of the critical race theory. And not everyone who even claims to support the critical race theory fully understands what it teaches or the godless philosophy on which it's based. So, so don't just start writing off everyone who uses the language of the social justice movement. Instead, be wise. Listen carefully. Critique wisely and, let me add, graciously. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love believes the best until there's evidence to the contrary. So don't be one of those Christians who reads a comment that somebody somewhere posted that one of your favorite teachers is now a raving CRTer and believe it and continue to promote it. Be gracious. Wait and see if it's true. Wait and see. It could be true, but it may not be true. So please be careful. If you want to read more about how CRT has permeated the evangelical church, I would encourage you to read Toby Smith's booklet, The Rise of Woke Christianity, a brief introduction. He documents that history. And there's also a helpful section in Vody Bauckham's book, Fault Lines, explaining how this unfolded in the SBC, if you're interested in that. Now, that's how it's expressing itself culturally. 
But I want to spend the rest of our time together focusing on what is really the key, and that is the biblical correction. What is the truth? What does the Bible teach instead of the tenets of the social justice movement? So important for us to start with this question. My father-in-law, who I had for a number of classes before I met his daughter, taught theology for 50 years. He used to always say this, and it's so true. The first question to your mind whenever you hear of anything is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Who cares what the people around you say? What does God say in his word? So let's consider that together. What is the biblical correction to the social justice movement with its critical race theory? Well, first of all, the Bible would say this, the real problem is sin. The real problem is sin. It's not about economics. It's not about whether you're in the majority or the minority. It's not about whether you're, you're in the, the privileged group or the unprivileged group. The real issue is sin. And there are several sins that ultimately feed both the historical problem as well as its current manifestations. So let's consider those sins. First of all, and most obviously, the sin of slavery the sin of slavery. Now, let me just be crystal clear. I am not talking about CRT's version in which they argue that our country was started to advance the institution of slavery and that the American Revolution was motivated primarily by a desire to keep the institution of slavery. And they would say there has been no substantive change or progress since the first European settlers came to this country. I'm not talking about that. Rather, I'm talking specifically about the biblical sin. Let me say it as clearly as I can. Slavery by kidnapping, in other words, American slavery, is a sin condemned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me show you. Go back with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Here in the law of God... Moses writes this, Exodus 21, 16. He who kidnaps, now you'll notice if you have the New American Standard and you have uh, marginal notes, literally the Hebrew word is he who steals a man. But obviously the idea is a man stealer or a kidnapper. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession or in his hand literally, he shall surely be put to death. The intention in that day, as it was in the day of American slavery, was to enslave this person. You kidnap them, you steal them in order to sell them to someone who's going to use them for slavery, or you yourself are going to use them for slavery, and God says, let them be put to death. Go over to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24. In the second giving of the law, this is reiterated in slightly different terms. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. If a man is caught kidnapping, again, the Hebrew is if he's found stealing any of his countrymen or the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Now, what is very clear in these two passages is that kidnapping in order to enslave is sin against God, 
because those people are made in the image of God and it is a sin against that person. And under Old Testament law in Israel, such a person who was involved in the slave trade in that way should be put to death. They should die because of their complicity in such actions. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. The New Testament only underscores this as crucial to God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, But we know that God's law is good if one uses it lawfully, if you use it like it was intended. Verse 9, realizing the fact that God's law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. In other words, to show them their sin. And then he gets specific. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers. Kidnappers, those who steal people in order to enslave them, and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So understand then that American slavery is sin. It's sin from the Old Testament. It's sin in the New Testament. It was wrong. Let's just admit that, acknowledge that. That's what God himself says. And yet that is exactly what went on in our, in our country. Let's start with just a brief historical survey. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to understand this. It begins, of course, with the British, because we were, after all, a British colony originally. The British National Archives describes the origins and growth of slavery in British America. It began in earnest in the 1640s when Dutch merchants introduced sugar to Barbados and showed Barbadian planters how to grow and process sugarcane. The problem is sugarcane requires large numbers of laborers. Eventually, it was discovered that the Dutch could provide such laborers by enslaving Africans and bringing them to the New World. Started with the Dutch, as far as the Europeans, Portugal and Britain were, eventually became the two greatest exporters of slaves, slave trading countries, accounting for about, this is the British National Archives, accounting for about 70% of all Africans transported to the Americas. It's estimated that Britain transported 3.1 million Africans, tragically, of whom only 2.7 million arrived. So 400,000 of them died in being transported across the ocean to the British colonies here in the Caribbean, North and South America, and other countries. Now, some of those who were enslaved were captured directly by British traders, slave traders, but sadly, the vast majority of those sold to European slave traders had been captured and were sold by West Africans. Now, let's come to the U.S., to U.S. history. I think you understand the first two settlements, European settlements on this continent, were characterized by different priorities. The first was in Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. Its chief priority was economic. The second was in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620, and the primary point of Plymouth was the pursuit of religious freedom. Sadly, however, both settlements and their streams accepted and practiced the biblical sin of slavery. 
Original source documents show that by 1662, slavery was recognized in the statutory law of the Jamestown colony. In 1641, the Massachusetts Bay Colony adopted laws that made slavery legal in the cases of prisoners seized in just war, those who sold themselves into slavery. Both of those are commented on in the Old Testament and were allowed, although strictly regulated. But they sadly also made it justifiably legal to own slaves purchased from other places. And that's how American slavery really took its foothold. Let's fast forward to 1776, the year in which our country was, was birthed. All 13 states that entered America at that point allowed slavery. But during and immediately following the revolution, several states passed laws outlawing it. And all the northern states had legally abolished slavery by 1805, although the actual freeing of slaves was more gradual. Congress banned the import trade of slaves in 1808, but of course smuggling was common and continued, and it still allowed for those slaves who were here and their offspring to be kept enslaved. In 1860, a government census was taken that clarifies the state of slavery in the U.S. just before the Civil War. At that time, just before the Civil War, there were 15 slave states and 20 free states. The total U.S. population was 31 million, with 4 million of them being slaves. The percent of U.S. households with slaves was 13%, but that, that's a bit of a, of a misleading number, because remember, there were 20 of the states in which there were no slaves, no slaves allowed or reported. If you take the slaveholding states in slave state, in slave states, the percent of households with slaves was 26%. And when you take the far south states, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and Florida, the percent of slaves to total population was 49%. On January 1st, 1863, as you know, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. It stated that all persons held as slaves within the succeeding states are, quote, are and henceforth shall be free, end quote. Of course, it was in the right direction, but as I think you may know, it exempted the loyal border states and portions of the South that had already been captured by the Union armies. Then came the 13th Amendment, ratified in December of 1865, which ended chattel slavery any place under U.S. jurisdiction. But then came Reconstruction, and I think you understand that during Reconstruction, former slaveholding states instituted what came to be called the Jim Crow Laws. Here's how the Encyclopedia Britannica describes them. From the late 1870s, southern state legislatures passed laws requiring the separation of whites from persons of color. It was codified on local and state levels, and most famously with the separate but equal decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. That continued until 1954. In 1954, the Supreme Court declared segregation in public schools unconstitutional, reversing Plessy in Brown versus the Board of Education. By extension, that ruling was applied to other public places and facilities, and 
Jim Crow laws began to be dismantled. I can tell you, as a boy growing up in the South, in, in Mobile, Alabama, in the 60s, I witnessed firsthand the fruit of nearly 100 years of Jim Crow laws and the separate but equal doctrine. And of course, as you know, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act passed, a comprehensive legislation intended to end discrimination based on race, color, religion, or national origin. Now that is a thumbnail sketch of slavery in America. Let me just make some appropriate conclusions based on that little historical sketch. First of all, we need to acknowledge that slavery by kidnapping and prejudice are undeniably a tragic part of our nation's history. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 15 of his series, Trending Versus Truth. Tom will conclude his series with part 16 next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces the Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.